Recording in progress. Welcome, everybody, to the Seattle Sports Union Podcast. My name is Abraham Deweese, and I'm back once again with that damn dirty duck, Matt Page. One, Brian, the soul man, Solak, and our very special guest this week, one, Rob Nyer. Welcome, Rob. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Excellent. And for all those you, all of those out there who, uh, who are wondering, who's Rob Nyer? Shame on you. <laughs> shame on you. Why are you listening to this podcast? And uh, if, you're, if you don't know who he is, then I take it all back. Listen to this podcast. We're going to find out more about him, find out what he's been up to. Uh, former writer for ESPN and now the commissioner. Is that right? The commissioner for uh, West, West Coast, Coast League. West Coast League. Yep. That is correct. Wow. Home of our beloved Bellingham Bells. <laughs> one of our one of our model organizations. Oh, that's outstanding. That's, that's, that's the outstanding. that's the party line. Okay, the official. <laughs> you have made friends with this podcast. Thank you, Rob. <laughs> yes, you have. <laughs> we were any more superlatives? You can you know just he heft on to. Uh, Bellingham, we'll accept it because that is our, that is our home brand. Uh, they're number two in our hearts, uh, next to the Everett Aquasocks. Uh, uh, and we, we've been up there guys. How long have we been going up to Bellingham games? I want to say three years three, now, four years? four years, five years. Uh, uh, years? This might be the fourth years. year. Yeah. This is a fourth year we're going into right on. And that's try to make it up been there very as generous. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, and that's a wood bat league. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more. But I know, Brian, you have some questions um, uh, that we want to get right out there to I, Rob. I, I do. I want to talk about the book called The Empire is Out. Uh, Dale Scott, former umpire, recently retired, just wrote a book with you that is coming out in May. How did that come about? It was incredibly fortuitous, I think. Um, I... I was working on my previous book, Powerball. And one of the things I wanted to write about was the current status of uh, or ability for people within the game to who were gay to come out. You know, at that point, there really had, there, there had never been a gay major leaguer who was out while playing, still the case. The, but Dale had just come out the previous spring as i recall uh dale of course had been a major league umpire at that point for 30 years so this was a, a pretty big story within the game yeah. and so i was working on my working on my book and i i don't know how i i was able to contact dale somehow and we both happened to be down at spring training at the same time i was researching my book reporting my book and dale was there doing something i think he had retired by that point but he was visiting the uh, spring training in Arizona and he was gracious enough to sit down with me for, gosh, it must've been two or three hours at least and talk about not only his personal situation, but also just baseball in general and umpiring and the strike zone and uh, trying to speed up the pace of play, all of those things, all the things you would ask an umpire if you're writing a book about baseball in this era. So he could not have been kinder to me. 
I asked him at some point, maybe during that conversation or later, have you ever thought about doing a book? And he told me that he really wasn't interested at that point. And I thought, well, that's just the end of it. Um, that, that would have been fun to maybe work with Dale on a book because I've always wanted to do something like that, work on a, a book with someone, be a, a what they used to call a ghostwriter, although that's sort of a pejorative. Um, but two years later, a mutual friend reached out to me and said, hey, I saw Dale Scott at this event last night, and he is thinking about doing a book. Are you interested in working on something with him? And I said, of course I am. So, so I reached out to Dale, and, and we met shortly afterward. And before long after that, we had decided we wanted to, to do a book. But then there was a long process of finding a publisher. And we, we wound up after months with the University of Nebraska Press. And they just do a tremendous job with their, their books. Editing, uh, their covers are beautiful. They just do a fantastic job with everything, really. And so I couldn't be more pleased to be to have done this book with Dale and for us to have done it with Nebraska Press. That's awesome. Looking forward to reading that. And that comes out in May, you were telling me that's correct. That'll be, I believe the official publication date is, I want to say May 2nd, but that doesn't seem right because it's the wrong day of the week, but the first week of May. And oftentimes books will come out earlier than their official pub date. Now, Grant, right now, because of supply chain issues, some publishers are having a real problem getting books by the publishing pub, publication date, but so far, I haven't heard anything negative. So I think we will have books the first week of May. Okay. So, and did, so, did I read somewhere to that Billy Bean, the former ball player who came out? He, he has a, like, he does a oh, board quick, quick, quick thing. Different Billy Bean. That's not the, uh, Sorry, I've run into yeah. this problem before. There's two Billy Beans. Um, yes, but they, 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 they did both play Major League Baseball. And they both played sure, baseball. Right. But, yeah. uh, right. So this is the Billy the Bean who doesn't work for the Oakland Athletics. Yes, exactly. Who yeah. does work for Major League <laughs> Baseball. And yes, he he contributed a lovely forward. In fact, he might have been the one who put me in touch with, with, with Dale in the first place four or five years ago. But mm -hmm. Billy wrote a great forward. We have some tremendous blurbs. David Cohn is, is on the cover, okay. Bob Costas. So uh, Dale's got a lot of friends around the game. And... I think that this book will will receive a, a, a great deal more attention than than baseball books typically do that are published by by university presses. I, I think you're going to see Dale uh, and hear see and hear Dale quite a bit uh, this spring. Awesome, and that's and he, uh, Billy Beams wasn't the first. I want to say Glenn Burke from the Dodgers was the first. Uh, I could be wrong about that. No, no you're right. Glenn Burke yeah. is yeah. is the first acknowledged major leaguer now obviously there were dozens before glenn burke we, right we just don't know who they were sure <laughs> sure that's fair. and that's i suspect fair. there have been dozens since <laughs> but statistically there's probably several current today uh well it have to be yeah have to be several <laughs> uh and you know honestly one of the things that's been disappointing to me these last three or four years is that nobody has come out in fact i don't know of any any publicly gay players in affiliated professional baseball right now there was one a few years ago um i actually interviewed him i'm blanking on his name but he was in a ball with the brewers and uh, i had a great chat with him for a story i was working on he retired a couple of years ago and i believe it, we're back down to zero which it, it's just it's it's to me it's unfortunate that players don't feel that the environment the public environment is healthy enough for them to come out if they choose to 
you know, there, we do, there is a, it's surprising to me at this point because of the history that we've seen the last few years. And also because of course the, the Oakland Raiders had a publicly uh, gay player all season long. And I I never heard anything negative about that, that, that whole thing. So I I would hope that it it happens soon. Just so I just want players to feel like they can, 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 publicly be who they want to be. And I'm not sure we're there yet. Well, that's one of the great things too, is uh, because Michael Sam, uh, when he got drafted from Missouri to uh, is it the Broncos, I think um, that was one of the first things I said, you know, wouldn't it be great when we get to the point where we don't even have to like, think about it. Right, like, like it's, it's not a big, not deal. even notable. Yeah, like, exactly. But right. isn't it weird that like the NBA, MLB, even NHL, you know, have people that came out during, their stints. Um, baseball hasn't. That, that's weird. Rob, do you have any idea uh, with your interviews with, uh, uh, you know, in your book, why that might be? Is there something in baseball that, you know, in the baseball culture that, that puts the foot to it or? Well, I, I wrote a story about this three or four years ago and I spoke to a number of professional players who came out after their careers no major leaguers, uh, but minor league players. And also to some, cur- I spoke to a couple of, of, of then currently, then active major league players. And I never really got an answer that made a great deal of sense to me. Having said that, one of the things I was told by an active player was when you're young, especially you are discouraged by your teammates and especially your veteran teammates from becoming the story, becoming a distraction to your teammates. Now, is that, is that more the case in baseball than other sports? I don't know. I don't know why it would be, except that one thing that's a little different about baseball is that those guys play so many games over the course of a season, right? Really, if you count, if you count, um, spring training and the postseason for some number of teams, you're, you're talking about roughly 200 games, yeah, almost 200. And you get so few breaks from each other. You're constantly traveling you're on airplanes in the clubhouse for weeks at a time, maybe with one day off. So there might be something that's just more insular about a baseball team. Again, I'm not sure that really explains it away. I don't think that it does. I did think after, after doing that story, I concluded to myself, I don't think I wrote this because I don't think it really, I can really back it up, but I think that it would be most likely for a gay player to come out if he were either a veteran who had some real standing in the game, or if he was, you know, there's nothing preventing there are some college baseball players who, who have been out and are out. There's no reason why one of those players couldn't eventually just move up through the minors and, and play in the majors. So it seems to me that those guys in the middle, that's tough. If you're 22, 25, 20, we just started your career. Uh, all of a sudden you're the center of attention for every time you go into a new city, everybody wants to talk to you and not to the veterans. But it seems to me that there are a number of players who could bust through that door. It just hasn't happened yet. Go ahead, Brian. I, uh, I'm going to move on to where 
I, I saw that you have a website, robnire.com, and <laughs> there's a frequently asked question on there I want to ask you myself. Mm-hmm. Who the hell are you and where the hell did you come from? <laughs> Wow. Well, okay, I, thought, well. I thought we only had an hour. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I've been known, I've been known to ramble when asked that question, but let me see if I can tell it in That's a, a couple of minutes. That's a pretty esoteric okay. question there, Brian. Yeah. Uh, when I actually posted that, uh, I think I did, I think I, I think I started that website in about 1998 or 99 when I was worried I was going to lose my job and I wanted to have some place where people could find out what I was doing. Uh, and that question has been there ever since. I don't know when the last time was I updated that fact. But uh, very long story short, shorter, I grew up uh, as a rabid Kansas City Royals fan. We moved to Kansas City when I was almost 10. The Royals were the team at that point. The Chiefs were nothing. The, nobody cared about the Kansas City Kings, the, the basketball team. Mm. They just lost their hockey team. The Royals were everything in, in that city. And they were also really good and really fun. And so I fell in love with them almost from the moment we, we arrived in Kansas City in the spring of 1976. I just became this crazy Royals fan. And then later on, a crazy baseball fan. I went to the University of Kansas. And my first or second day on campus, I went to the bookstore. And I found this. This is the fall of 1984. And I noticed this book in the sports section of the, the university bookstore the Bill James Baseball Abstract, 1984. I started flipping through it, and I realized immediately this is this was like written for me, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> I, I fancied myself somewhat of an iconoclast. Not that I would have used that word, but um, I thought I was uh, a lot more intellectual than I actually was or am. So, but but this book did appeal to me because it it was full of things that I'd never read before. So I bought the book took it back to my apartment. I think I probably devoured it cover to cover, certainly within a couple of days I'd read it. And from that moment on, if you'd asked me when I was in college, Rob, what do you want to be when you grow up? What I would have said was, I want to work for Bill James. But I had literally no idea how one would do something like that. I didn't even realize that Bill lived about 45 minutes away from, from where I was in Lawrence, Kansas. Mm. I thought he was out in the middle of the state someplace. I got my I got Winfield, Kansas mixed up with Winchester, Kansas. Uh, so I, I really had no idea. I struggled in college, did not do, was not a good student, did not take to it at all. Wound up dropping out in my fourth year and took a job as a roofer. And I was fortunate because Bill lived so close. We, 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 we did have a mutual friend. And when Bill was looking for a research assistant about, I don't know, six months into my roofing job, our mutual friend told me I should apply. And my first response was, why would I do that? There's no way Bill would hire me. I have no qualifications. I'm really not very smart. Uh, I, I'm roofing and I'm, I dropped out of, just dropped out of college. My friend said, just apply. So I sent Bill a letter. He, he, he responded with, another, with a letter, said, let's, let's get together and, um, and talk. We went out to eat. And then a few weeks later, he called me and said, Rob, I want to hire you. And that was the second greatest moment now of my life. The first being when my daughter was born seven years ago. So that sort of set, set the, my course. I worked for Bill for four years, tried to freelance for a little bit. That did not go well. That went about as well as my, my, my student life. 
Uh, I was very fortunate. I got a job with Stats Inc. Uh, was there for two and a half years. And then through a series of, again, my whole career has been a series of fortunate circumstances, but through a, through a very, through a very fortunate circumstance, I wound up getting interviewed and hired by what was then ESPNetSportsZone.com and later morphed into ESPN.com, of course. And uh, I spent 15 years there. I used to say I wrote more words for ESPN than, than anyone else. I'm not sure if that's still true, but it certainly was when I was saying it. And um, some other great things have happened since then. That is awesome. In fact, uh, when, wow. when uh, I think Matt, you and I were talking one day and you told me that Rob was commissioner of, uh, you know, the West coast league. And mm-hmm. I'm like, no, no, no. He's writing on ESPN. He's been writing there for like 50 years. Uh, big shock to me. Uh, but if I could go back to 1984, you mentioned uh, the Royals. And obviously, had George Brett, Dan Quisenberry. But um, we Mariner fans ha- have to blame the Royals for an utter disaster that you unleashed on us in Steve Balboni. <laughs> I, I've been looking for an apology for years for that, for for giving us Steve Balboni. And I don't think I'm going to get one now, but I just <laughs> no, wanted I forgot, to, I actually <laughs> forgot that Balboni wound up with America because he also played for the Rangers. And I think even the Yankees briefly after yep. the Royals and, you know, Balboni was, he was not a great player, but he had his moments, he had his moments. and his best moments were with the Royals and especially during the 1985 uh, world series. Didn't he have like a the 30 game or 30 home run season? Which was awesome in the eighties. He did. He was their record holder until just a couple of years ago. And then the other guy I liked, uh, uh, you had a shortstop with a toothpick in his mouth, the UL Washington. Was Absolutely, one of my favorites. Yeah, he was a shortstop. Yeah. And in my fact, dad, I, oh, go ahead. I I spent two or three years during that. Actually, after he played for the Royals, but I, I for some reason thought that that was a good look or a good idea or something, and I would literally go to bed with a toothpick in my mouth every night and sleep that way. And it, <laughs> that lasted for some months or maybe even years. Rob, I played wiffle Sounds ball with dangerous. my friends. It was dangerous because <laughs> yep. I played wiffle ball with my friends and had it in my mouth. Uh, and I got hit in the face with the wiffle ball. Oh. <laughs> and my dad's like, you could have choked to death. And I'm like, but the, the guy on TV, I don't, I <laughs> this week in baseball, he was on all the time. I don't know. <laughs> 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 that's funny um so i want to i want to ask uh i want to ask you a question about um i was rereading uh powerball which i i have to comment you on it's a great book and everyone listening you should pick it up it's wonderful um it made me think about you're you're, you're doing a lot of comparisons uh from modern day to, to, to the past and so forth I'm curious what your thoughts are on today's movement and and Rob Manfred's quest to ruin baseball, in my opinion, of you know potentially exploring eliminating the shifts and 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 moving the mound and raising it, lowering it, pushing it back, you know whatever they're doing. The guy on second. I'm curious to what you think of of these these new fangled rules. Well, I'm in favor of anything that makes the game more entertaining. For the fans, I think really okay. that's what it comes down to. It's and and I and I mentioned I, I talk about this in the book quite a bit, and especially in the last chapter when I try to try to sum up everything, all my thinking along these lines. Baseball, like every other spectator sport, every other 
team spectator sport anyway, has for most of its history been adjusted every so often to make the game a better spectator sport. Uh, when you go back and look at how the game was run from day one until roughly, gosh, I don't, I don't know. I want to say 1990 or so. I'd have to go back and, and actually try to figure that out. But for more than a hundred years, there were constantly adjustments being made to the baseball, to the strike zone, to the height of the pitcher's mound, uh, many other things. And it was always done or almost always done because the owners or what they used to call the Lords of Baseball decided right or wrong that the game was moving in the wrong direction or that the fans were not as interested as they could be because of something happening in the game. You know, the, the most famous example, of course, is, is when the mound was lowered after the 1968 season, which has been known ever since as the year of the pitcher. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the DH was added in 73 to the American League because the American League was not drawing nearly as well as the National League. And they thought that would stir fan interest. I don't know that it really worked all that well, but that was the, that was the reasoning. It still so then, happens. Go ahead. What, what's your position on, the, on, on a global DH? I'm just curious. Sorry. Well, as a fan, I actually will, will be sad when that happens because I think one of the interesting things about baseball for, for ever since I've been following it is that there's been a difference between the leagues. This now is the last difference. There used to be a number of differences, different umpiring crews, different curfew rules. Uh, people said that there was there were different pitching styles. That the the National League was the fastball league, the American League was the breaking ball league. I I don't know if that's was ever true, but it was always said. Mm -hmm. You really can't make the argument anymore. Aside from the DH, there's any difference in the leagues in terms of of style of play. Um, so I, I'll, I'll miss seeing I'll miss the difference. I won't really miss seeing pitchers hit. Uh, it's rarely entertaining or fun. But I will miss the sort of the the just the the idea that there's a difference between some meaningful difference between the leagues because now there won't be at all. It'll just be one big league, and that's fine. That's what most people are going to be are going to are going to forget about the pitchers hitting almost as soon as it happens. But you know, getting back to what I was trying to get to before, mm -hmm. what's distinguished baseball for the last thirty years? It's it's almost nothing has changed, and I shouldn't say that. That's not. There have been some small changes, but in terms of fundamental changes to the game, like, for example, lowering the mound, that might be a good idea. I don't know. I haven't seen the science on it. It could be. It might be a good idea. It might make for a better, more interesting game with more batted balls in play and more uh, great defensive plays, which are one of the hallmarks of the sport. I don't know, but the we'll probably never know because it's almost impossible now to do meaningful things because the players have to almost uh, in a, in some fundamental ways, the players have to agree to meaningful changes and the players will agree to almost nothing meaningful. The pitch clock, for example, which has been talked about, well, for decades and decades, actually, mm. but the, one of the, the, the easiest way to quicken the pace of the game would simply be to enforce the rule that's in the rule book and it it's it can't be done it's been tried many times 
and it fails every time. Well, that's, that's interesting. You mentioned that because the pitch clock is one of those items that has been in implemented. You see it at stadiums all the time. Um, but they're not enforcing it. I want to say guys, there, there's a minor league system that's going to enforce it this year. Does anybody remember which one that is? Well, I think they already have it at the higher levels. They're actually enforcing it in the minor leagues, right? Yeah, they, okay. they they didn't have they don't have it at the Aqua Sox yet. They might have it this year, but they didn't have it last year. Yeah, no, I don't remember it at Aqua Sox last year at all. They're high we, A, so they're. I think it's the higher levels that are, are that start implemented it first. Well, and unfortunately, even in AAA, where and I saw a AAA game. Gosh, it's got to be five or six years ago, maybe seven or eight. And they had it and it, they were, it was enforced and the, the pace of the game was noticeably better. I, I should better as a, a, a subjective judgment, noticeably quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, well, even though it quote worked unquote and the umpires were able to enforce it for some reason, they've basically given up on enforcing it over the last few years. Uh, the, the pace of the games has or that I should say the t- amount of time between pitches is now right back to where it was before they started using the pitch clock or close. So it's just, it has to, the enforcement has to be constant. The emphasis has to be constant. And there are so many people militating against it, mostly the pitchers and their coaches, um, but also the hitters. Some of the hitters like this, like this well, fool around between pitches for 20 Yeah, the hitters, seconds. you know, let's, let's, let's stand there, watch a pitch go by, then step back, walk around, readjust all my gloves, even though I didn't swing. Right. You know, <laughs> and wander back 30 seconds later. It's like, right. that's not the pitcher delaying the game. That's the hitter. No, it's true. But, and again, there is a rule in the books. And uh, th- these discussions go back literally a century. You can find news stories from the, the the dead ball era prior to 1920 talking about how long the games are now. So, and one of the, one of the running themes in, in Powerball is that none of the things that we hear about are, are new. None. I mean, yes, we have new technology, but the idea of technology in the game, even that's been around for a long, long time. Of course, it's just more, it's far more sophisticated now and widespread, but almost every, Fundamentally, almost every story that you read about the, the state of the game now, you can read 50, 60, 100 years ago. Okay. Um, I, I've counted, you've, you've written or co-written, I believe, is it eight books now? Is that correct? It'll be eight in May, yes. Okay. I, I, shame on me. I'm a diehard Red Sox fan, and I didn't know you wrote Feeding the Green Monster, so shame on me. Um would you care to tell me briefly about that book? What was the meaning behind it? Because I got to go out and buy that book after. Well, I appreciate that. I, I don't talk about it a lot. It, it was sort of a, it, it brings back a lot of, of, of negative memories. Okay. I mean, I, I'm over it. Don't, don't, it, I'm happy, <laughs> happy talking about it. It's, it's just sort of, you know, 20 years, uh, 23 years ago, the fall of 1999, I went to Boston. I'd never been to Fenway park. I made a special trip just so I could, see Fenway Park basically mm-hmm. and um, went to a weekend series I believe it was I shouldn't even say it was a weekend it might have been a week a weekday series but it was against the Orioles and I was captivated immediately by the stadium and by the fans by how 
much they seemed to know about the game, about their team, how much they cared. And I just thought to myself, I, I need to spend more time here. And I got home and I back to I was living in Seattle at that point. I got back to Seattle and started thinking, how how would I do that? How would I spend more time in 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 Fenway Park? And I arrived at the answer, well, write a book about it. <laughs> so I I pitched a book um, to my agent, who then pitched it to publishers. And the basic concept, which is what the book wound up being, was Rob will go to will 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 live near the stadium, which I did. Got an apartment four blocks away from Fenway. Rob will live near Fenway Park. He will attend every Red Sox home game. Wow. And sort of just write a diary. And I, that's what, so that's what I did. I also attended, I don't know how many, a dozen, maybe more road games. I, I came back to Seattle and saw their series against the Mariners. I went to Yankee Stadium for their two series there. And I think I saw some games in Baltimore as well. Uh, so I wound up seeing almost 100 Red Sox games and writing about their season. I delivered the book that winter. Uh, actually, it was probably shortly after the World Series, early November. Delivered the book. A month later, I heard back from my editor. And he he, he had zero interest in publishing what I had, what I had submitted, which was, as you can imagine, a bit of a letdown. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I understood his reservations. I also felt and still feel that with some work and some help from him, we could have turned it into something that, that he would have, well, maybe not that he would have deemed publishable, but that, that I would have been happy with, but he basically just didn't want to have anything, anything to do with the book. So my, my, my agent found me another publisher. We had to rush it out. So it, it, it didn't get the full, you know, hardcover um, treatment. It wound up being sort of a publish. This was in the very early days of of uh, publish on demand. So basically, if someone ordered the book, it would be literally printed for them. Um, and that's what. The, and you could still get it; it's still out there. You could still order that print on demand. There might even be a pile of them in a warehouse someplace. I'm not sure, but. <laughs> But, um, you know, when I, when I read the book now, I see the weaknesses. I understand why the editor didn't, didn't care for it. I also, I also see things in that book that I, that I really like and that I, I'm gladder in that book. I just think what it needed was a little more time, maybe some real editing help, and frankly, a slightly better or more introspective author. Um, I, maybe I wasn't the right person to write that book at that moment but yeah it's the story of um of feeding the green monster <laughs> thank actually, you for sharing that actually i was going to ask a different question but i want to stay on this topic if i can for a sec uh, i wonder rob what would uh would things have been different had it been more of a daily blog as opposed to a uh you know a format maybe a different yeah format. maybe for a different format would that is what it was basically it is essentially a diary that re- almost reads like a blog would yeah before the word blog i think had been invented um, maybe I, maybe shortly after. Um, but that was always when I worked at was at ESPN, what I settled on pretty early on was, and we called it a column because we didn't have a better word for it, but it really was a sort of proto blog where, where I answered uh, reader email and, uh, would just write about whatever was on my mind. It was, so it was sort of 
it was a column to some, you know, it was a traditional column in some ways, but in other ways it was very interactive. Yeah. There was no uh, problem with the author. The problem was with the media that you, well, I, I think that, stuck that with. <laughs> if I, there's a long history of not a long history. There is a history of books like mine written in sort of a diary form. Uh, one of the things that I missed was I didn't really get into the culture surrounding Red Sox fans as much as I probably should have. And as much as my editor was expecting, there's some of that in the book, but a lot of it is just me basically blogging about my life and about going to the game and about the Red Sox and those sorts of things. That's all I knew how to do at that point. That's um, very I'm not sure I know much more than that now, that's, that's but very, certainly the one thing I've always wondered about my editor was, what kind of book was he thinking I could write based on my previous work? Because the book that I wrote is very much in line with what I had always done. That's very Hunter S. Thompson. And that's yes. pretty awesome. And I think that's more, well, now nah, let me rephrase. I was going to say it's more in interesting, but it's just as interesting as a Red Sox fan experience because you're looking at it from a uh, de detached uh, personal experience, mm. uh, detached from the team that is, right. uh, but your personal experience. I, I've, I think it, I think it was just, we talked to Seth Everett about a month ago was it guys and mm -hmm. similar thing. Like, uh, uh, th there was just the wrong media at the, at the time that he, like, like you, he was ahead of his time. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I, that sounds super awesome. I hope, uh, Brian, I'm going to hit it, hit you up. Cause I want to find that, uh, Absolutely. After, after this call. So, uh, cause I'd like to read that. It sounds interesting. Even if it is somewhere in a, in a landfill, or, you know, wherever, <laughs> wherever you said it was, Rob. Um, Just dust it off. Dust it off. Dust fine. it off on the, in the library of Alexandria. But um, I was going to ask you about uh, becoming West Coast League commissioner before I went off on that tangent. Um, how did that happen? I mean, like, obviously you're very highly regarded in the uh, authoring field, in the field of journalism, media, like, the West Coast League just said, you know what? We want somebody smart, not just another robot. <laughs> is, that, is that what happened? I don't actually know a great deal about what the thinking was. Uh, when, when this happened, <laughs> and it's one of the, it's, it, first of all, when you are, I was, when I got the job, I, I think I was 51. Uh, when you are a 51-year-old semi-successful, uh, largely struggling freelance writer, which is what I was four years ago. And, you know, to some degree still am, um, because I had, I had left Fox my last full-time job about a year earlier, um, or two years earlier, you, you, you don't, the last thing you think is that an opportunity to do something like this is going to come along. I mean, I was literally trying to figure out if, if Uber, made sense as an employment possibility or if i could handle uh carrying the mail every day in, in <laughs> during a portland winter uh I, I never got to the actual point of doing those things but but those thoughts crossed my mind um fortunately i i did have the book coming out so that was it gave me a bit of a cushion and i knew i had the the summer the 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 upcoming summer again this is four years ago with really nothing going on. So I had spoken, given a talk at a local, an annual baseball banquet here in Portland. It's typically just people who love baseball, who live in the area, 
coaches, local umpires. They always have a few guest speakers and an ex-player. Dale Murphy, for example, is, is going to be there this year. Um, but I gave a, a talk about, uh, about baseball, a lot of baseball history in, in the talk, a lot of things about how baseball, well, the, the point of the talk is, is that baseball still in some fundamental ways is our national pastime, even though it has become less popular than, than certainly the NFL. Uh, and you could argue the NBA. Some people would argue that anyway. Mm-hmm. But um, one of the people in, the, in the, the, the crowd that night, and there were a couple hundred people in the audience, was a man named Dan Siegel. Dan is the, frankly, the mastermind behind the Corvallis Knights, who okay. have dominated the West Coast League for Ooh. the last five, six, seven Ooh, years. We, they basically yeah. we hate that win the championship Ooh. every year. <laughs> yeah, we don't uh, like that. There, there are a lot of reasons why the Knights win every year, but Dan is the guiding light behind that organization. And that, if I were writing a book about the Knights, I, I would start trying with Dan, mm-hmm. uh, trying to get inside his head. But anyway, Dan was in the crowd that night. Dan and I have a mutual friend, Rob Nelson. You might know the name Rob Nelson. Rob is the inventor of Big League Chew and okay. quite, the, quite the man about town <laughs> really? here in Portland. Rob knows everybody. <laughs> um, so I'd never met Dan, but Rob and I are good friends, and, and, Dan, and Dan and Rob are good friends. So I don't know, know exactly how this happened, but a few weeks later, Rob said, uh, I'm meeting Dan for breakfast, and um, he wants to talk to you about the West Coast League. And I, okay, that sounds interesting, I guess. Um, I'd been to one West Coast League game in my life, and I, 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 understand, I knew what it was, but didn't know much about it. Mm-hmm. And once we sat down, I realized that Dan was, was, wanted to talk about me becoming the commissioner. It was a pretty easy call for me. The pay was incredibly low, but I did nothing going on that summer. And the way Dan made it sound, there would be very little work to do. Travel to the ballpark, see a bunch of baseball games, and have fun. And maybe there might be a dispute or two during the season. Maybe an umpire gets, uh, you know, has a gets into a thing with a head with a head coach, and I have to deal with that. But basically, it would just be a, a fun way to spend the summer. So I thought, sure. And Dan somehow convinced the rest of the teams that I might be a good fit in that role, and and um, and that's how it happened. Uh, it turned into a much larger job than I had thought it would. And, and now it is my full-time job, at least in the summer and for other chunks of the year. Uh, and there's a lot more to it. I don't know if this was intended, but there's a lot more to it than just the, you know, dealing with a, a player suspension or, or an ejection. That is a big part of it during the summer. And it's my least favorite part of the job. It's writing reports and, and suspending <laughs> players and coaches is not at all fun, but it's the job. It's a big part of the job. And, I figure somebody has to do it. It might as well be me. What was the idea behind expansion? Was that all you? I mean, you guys have expanded like two two or three Canadian teams, Ridgefield, Washington, ever since you've taken over. I mean, tell us a little bit about expansion. Three this year, three Canadians just this year. That And Springfield, Springfield, Oregon. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's, that's right. right. Yeah, we had, Thank you. we had 12 teams in 2019. 2020, we didn't play. 2021, we had 10 teams uh, with all five Canadian teams not able to play because of the border. Mm-hmm. And this year, we are back to 16 with with um, all the Canadian teams, including three new Canadian teams, Edmonton, Kamloops, and Nanaimo. 
um, and also Springfield. So I, I have basically nothing to do with expansion, except that occasionally uh, someone will reach out to me and said, Rob, I'm interested in joining the league. Who do I talk to? And I'll have a conversation, sort of give them the lay of the land and then hand them off to somebody who's better at business than I am. Uh, but it's, it's just a, it's a thrill to be a part of this. We, the West coast league has the distinction and it's, it's, this is pretty, this is an objective judgment really is of being the top summer collegiate league in the Western half of North America. So that's a massive amount of land, right? So if yeah. you, if you want to play in the summer, and you want to stay in the Western half of the country as most of the players who play college ball in the West do you want to play in the West coast league. If you want to run a baseball, a collegiate summer team in the Western half of the U S this is the league where you want to do it. So we get inquiries all the time. Uh, the limiting factors are markets. We're not going to put a team right next to another team and stadiums. There are some great markets in still in the Northwest that just that just don't have stadiums um so and that's the limiting factor at this point but certainly if you look around the map and i'm sure you guys have mm -hmm. uh, pl places that don't have baseball of any sort really um it's not difficult to imagine a few more west coast league teams thriving so you had the uh the the annual winter meetings this last weekend, actually, right? Mm -hmm. yep. And um, so you, that's where you finalize the, how the playoffs are going to work and all that. But uh, I mentioned, not... oh, sorry, right. I mentioned some other contingencies for uh, you know the border closing and 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 um, a revised code of conduct up for the players. I was curious about what that meant exactly. Well, that, uh, you, you want to write it for me? Because I haven't started yet. Yes, we can. We can we, write that for you. Don't be a jerk. Step yes. step one. Don't we, be a jerk. Step two. Bellingham is the best, and admit it. I will <laughs> say this: Bellingham <laughs> seems to win the Sportsmanship Award every year. So they do, they really do a great job. Their uh, their owner, uh, Glenn Kirkpatrick, he simply doesn't tolerate ill behavior, and his general manager Stephanie Morell is a, is is. She's one of our favorite people. Yeah, she's she's amazing. amazing. She yeah. really is. I mean, she is sort of, I, I mentioned that Bellingham was a, uh, one of our model member teams. We don't call them franchises because technically they're not. They're member teams. Uh, Stephanie is one of our model GMs. She's just incredible. Uh, she not only runs the Bells brilliantly, she also is always available when I or another team needs help with something so she's just tremendous and uh, that's why they one of the reasons they win the sportsmanship award every year or have recently um is because they run a tight ship up there they get good kids and they tell them what's expected and that's what they get and if if, if they don't get that the kid's gone um and that's frankly how it should be in summer ball i, I think awesome and one thing that we didn't do at the top of the show is we didn't really explain what West Coast League is. It's a wood bat league, and it's an opportunity typically for co college players in the summer uh, to go out and show off to the Major League Baseball uh, their their capabilities uh, well, and continue to refine their craft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really it's really more that mm -hmm. the second one of those because the truth is, 
the very best young college players, the ones who are about to be drafted anyway, they typically wind up in the Cape Cod League. And everyone, you know, the Cape Cod League talent is yeah. far and away the, the best in, um, in all the collegiate summer leagues. And we have players, our best players, usually our most talented players, I should say, typically are sophomores or maybe juniors, but often sophomores, incoming sophomores. They'll be sophomores in the fall. Uh, and if they're going to be juniors in the fall and they are that talented, they'll probably wind up in the Cape League. Is um, that because Cape Cod, do they offer better money or are there just more eyeballs on? Well, there there is no money. Um, oh, okay. it is It is all about the eyeballs. And by eyeballs, I mean yeah. the scouts' eyeballs. The, the, the great thing for the players about the Cape League is that for those, anyone listening who hasn't been to Cape Cod, it's a small piece of land. Yep. And all, I don't remember how many there are, 8, 10, 12 teams in the Cape League. They're all within 20, 30, 45 minutes of each other. So if you're a scout, every night you can make a short drive and see the top talent. So that's why the best players wind up there. It's just so convenient for the scouts. Uh, typically players who are going to be drafted either that summer or the fo- more often the following summer. Um, so that's where the, but once you get past the Cape league, you've got the, you know, the, the coastal plain league is, is, has a lot of talent, the Northeast collegiate baseball league, or maybe it's the new England collegiate baseball league actually. Yeah, that's right. Um, they're really good. Isn't North, um, Northwoods the, like one of them? the Northwoods league has a lot of talent, fantastic crowds. Um, but and again, once you get past those, um, when, and once you get past to the the middle of the country, there's really nothing else that can compare with the the West Coast. Like, there are a couple of teams that play in California in the summer that are have a lot of talent, but league wise, um, nobody can compare with 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 what the West Coast League gets. Okay, but it, it is mostly about at this level for us. It's mostly about players. If you're if you are a, a co- college player, and you have professional aspirations it is simply expected of you and i think it's probably um uh uh, fair it's expected that you will play in the summer somewhere and continue to develop and not just take the summer off um it's probably a a good time to you know it's probably good to take a break when you're 10 11 13 (laughs) they always say that kids are better if they play different sports but the the consensus i think is that by the by this point, by the time you're 18, 19, 20, you should play not only all spring, but also all summer. Okay. Well, with, with once the season starts up, what's the day in the life like for you, Rob? I mean, <laughs> you get up, you go, you go to a ballpark. I mean, briefly tell us what the day in the life is. Well, for you. it's the, 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 one of the great things at the job is that every day is, is different. I really, I can plan some things and I do plan my, my trips when we had 12 teams, uh, which was what three years ago, the last time we had 12 teams play. I, and the, and my first and second seasons, I was fortunate enough to visit every ballpark. And that was just tremendous fun. Um, it's going to be tougher with 16 teams. I think I probably won't even try to do that. Trying to visit 16 different, and two of them are within, half an hour by house. So that's not so bad, but when you have teams in Edmonton and Kamloops and Kelowna, uh, those are flights. And that's a, that's a real trip. 
And it's also expensive, quite frankly. So um, I think what I'll probably try to do is get to all of the new stadiums this year. Uh, and again, we have five, five teams that have never played before uh, this year. Um, so or maybe four, come to think of it. I can't remember now, four or five. I'll, I'll get to all of those and fill in here and there when it makes sense, especially around the area. But yeah, I'll see a lot of baseball games um, this summer. Really, beyond that, it's it's almost all about reacting to things that come up. You know, if, if you have an incident, well, the most obvious one is when you have any ejection, I've got to, I've got to write a full report uh, based on the umpire's reports and video and inform the teams uh, that are involved who, if anyone, is suspended. Now, if a player is ejected, it's an automatic suspension. One time in my four seasons have we had a player ejected and not be suspended. And it was because the umpire screwed up. The umpire thought the player had done something which he didn't do. And uh, to its credit, our chief of umpire said, that's not a suspension. We can't do that. So that was the one time. But every other time a player has been ejected, it's an automatic suspension. But you have to figure out how many games. They aren't. Most of them are routine, routine one-game suspension, but not all. So when a coach gets ejected, that's tougher because – there's really nothing automatic about any of that. M- many times when a coach is ejected, a head coach, that's he's just out for that game and he's back the next game. But there are certain lines, as you know, that you can't cross, whether it's the major leagues or collegiate summer ball. And I spend a great deal of time after every coach ejection looking at video and reading reports and talking to my head of umpires to figure out what, if anything, additional needs to happen. So a lot of time gets spent on, on, on that. And then all sorts of other things come up during the season. Teams have issues with technology and I have to reach out to our provider. We, we have TrackMan and various other things in our stadiums. Um, so it's, it's busy and it never ends. It's, it's, it's a seven day a week, um, 24 hour a day job. I, I can start at seven o'clock in the morning and if something comes up in games that night, be up until two o'clock. And, and that's just what the job is. Is TrackMan the robot umpire? It can be used for that. Uh, okay. We we haven't, but yes, TrackMan. Well, TrackMan can can uh, build a strike zone. It's not designed for that. So okay. if you wanted to use it that way, and the Portland Pickles uh, actually did use TrackMan uh, as a. They even built a robot and stuck him behind home plate. Oh, like that's awesome! Board, foil covered. <laughs> that robot. is cool. I want to see that. <laughs> yeah. Matt, Matt, right? Matt Bryan? You, can, you can find him if you go back and look at a Pickles <laughs> game. Now, they did not use that system in official league games. They used the system in non-league games. But I believe the Pickle always sat in his spot, whether it was a league game or not. So if you go back and go to their YouTube or their Facebook Live channel and uh, any one of their home games, I believe you can see the Pickle bot, they called him, sitting behind home plate. That is awesome. Matt, uh, Brian, Trivia? Who owns the Portland Pickles? Oh, I saw John Ryan. John Ryan, hey, former Seahawks hunter. That's right. Former Co-ons. former Sorry, punter yeah. for the uh, Seahawks, uh, yeah. who I have his jersey for, and then they got then they got rid of him immediately. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Seahawks. Um, you had the winter meetings. You were saying last week. Can, can you explain the new playoff format? I know previously it was uh, first half versus second half in one division, and then other division played each other. I mean. I, 
what's what's the new playoff format now with the 16 teams well yeah we had we we've always had a, as far as as long as i've been in the league anyway we've always had a super traditional minor league sort of system first half second half semifinals and championship series two best of three series uh well three two semifinal series and and then your championship series and what i have been arguing for a while is let's throw that out let's do something different every year just experiment you know everybody will ask every team to come up with their favorite playoff system and then we'll just take turns that's probably a little too radical for (laughs) most of the people in the world and certainly in our league uh people like to have a plan and feel like they're they there's a perfect playoff system but after that i haven't seen before uh in in professional baseball or collegiate summer ball i'm not saying it hasn't been done but as far as i know this is an original thought that we came up with um, we are half of our teams are going to be in the playoffs, eight out of 16. One thing that allows us to do is give all eight playoff teams a home game, which I think is fantastic for the fans who, who yeah. do care about these things. Uh, half when half of your teams, half of your team's fans are going to get at mm. least one home game, which I think is really, really exciting. Um, so we'll have two divisions, four playoff teams from each division. And then here's the where, and part of all this is driven by the season length. One of the things that happens in collegiate summer baseball is that by the middle of August, players want to get home or they need to get to school. Yeah. You know, some teams are on the, I forget which is which, but there are some schools that start classes in late August, right? Yep. You're on the, either, I don't know if it's a quarter or semester system, but um, so, the player attrition is pretty significant with most of our teams early to mid August. Also a lot of players, college coaches want them to get out of there, especially pitchers, right? No mm-hmm. more innings, buddy. That's it. So we, we face a lot of pressure to finish our season. Now there are leagues, the Northwoods league, for example, plays in, into September. Um, they've made that work, but, but we feel we have a priority to get the season over with when we can. And one of the ways we're doing that is compressing the playoff schedule. Now, how do you add four playoff teams and still compress the playoff schedule or at least keep it the same? Well, what we're doing is the first series for every team is a best of three. The four winners from that then each play a single game against their divisional foe. That's the division championship game. And then those two teams, the winners of those games, um, they play a single championship game. So we not only compress the schedule, but we also create, I hope, a great deal of excitement in those single championship <laughs> games. Now, if, if the championship game, the, you know, is it, is it 13 to two, you just lost a lot of your excitement, your drama. But yeah. our hope is that we can create something um, really exciting and somewhat unique in having a single championship game in our league rather than a best of three. That's awesome. Right on. <clears throat> um, 
Yeah, I don't have another question for you. The, Abe's trying to throw it to me. And <laughs> it was your turn. Spot here. It was your turn, but that's okay. Brian will take your turn. <laughs> uh, yeah. Did Did you happen to notice you were a Jeopardy question there the other, oh, the, the yeah. other night? <laughs> I, I'm going to do a little name dropping. I was minding my own business at 4.15 or 4.20 here in the Pacific time zone, of course. And, and that's roughly when Jeopardy is on in the East. And I get this text from... Um, uh, Lindsay Barra, who's a journalist. I know a little bit. She happens to be a Yogi Berra's granddaughter. You've probably seen her on Twitter, oh. et cetera. Mm -hmm. And she was the first one. Who, and it was cute because she, she said, you probably heard this a million times already, but no, I had not heard. So she, so I, I had no idea. So uh, it took a, a few minutes after, and then within a few minutes, I was seeing it everywhere. Twitter, Facebook, people were posting things. What, what did, what did it say? What was reminder? I, I, if you read the the if you read the the answer or the clue whatever they call it, I'll Brian, see if just, I can... re just read it off. Nobody can see you on this podcast. Uh, well, <laughs> it's, okay, it's, it's difficult to go read. Ahead. I found no. You go ahead. I I probably can't read okay. it correctly. <laughs> Sports writer Rob Nyer posed a query: What makes the race for one of these baseball flags great? Yeah, that's pretty good. It reads when you see it on the screen. It doesn't make any really make any sense. But when you read it out aloud like that, I, I guess it it could make sense to people. And the answer, of course, is what is a pennant? Mm -hmm. Why they chose me, uh, and and that sort of quote, I have no <laughs> idea because I must have written that for Fox or or SB Nation or ESPN. Who knows how many years ago? It was just a weird thing to see. <laughs> yeah, I would have thought like they should have quoted you about Picklebot. V1. Um, that, that's what that's true right. fans really want to know is the Portland Pickles robot. robot. <laughs> hey, we're so we're heading up against uh, against the an, end of our show here. And Rob, I just got to say, like uh, the three of us have been reading you forever, and I know you you're a little you know so, so, self uh, uh, deprecating there, but I mean your content is why I went to ESPN. I, uh, you know, I, I, I know you're not going to say anything against them, but so I will. Um, it's almost, <laughs> it's unreadable for me. It's, it, I like deep thought. I like, uh, even though I don't agree with all your numbers, you, you, you shift into that map. He's anti-sabermetrics. I'm not anti-sabermetrics. I'm anti-map page and he likes sabermetrics. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but, uh, no, your work is wonderful. Yeah. Um, and if you want to call success, you know, what people think about you, Everybody on this show puts you up here on a pedestal because we loved it. It's insightful. It's thoughtful. And it's not just some sound bites and tweets and, you know, uh, thing, things to, things to get famous off of, you know, as far as, uh, you know, reshares and et cetera. It's actually, it's actually good content. We thank you. Thank you for all well, that. I, I do appreciate that. I, I, every time I would leave a job and it's been a while now, but, you know, I leave ESPN and, and post sort of a farewell little note. Yeah, actually, you, I, I hated that sort of stuff. So I would just say I would do my normal thing. And then I'd have a sentence at the end saying, oh, this is my last column, by the way. But, <laughs> but um, you know, I did that had that happened at ESPN and it happened at at at, at SB Nation. And then it ultimately happened at at Fox. And and. After. I would write those things or mention mention in passing that I was leaving. There would always be this, and it's embarrassing to say this, but an outpouring of something uh, that 
was very gratifying and it was it's always nice to be reminded that that what i was doing resonated with at least some small subgroup of people who like who or who love baseball um and uh, you know bill james was a was a life changing presence for a lot of people my age and i've had people much younger than I say similar things about my work. Now, I would never suggest that I uh, had the, um, the, the effect on people that Bill James did, or, or and it's, that's pretty obvious in the public record. But, but um, uh, I, I do think that I've played some small role in, in, in helping people enjoy the, the game a little more. And, and that, that is gratifying. I, so I appreciate it. No problem. No small role, big role. But we are getting to the end of our show here. We always like to end on a positive note. And that was a, a very good positive note. But let's add some yes. more positive notes and put together a chord, if it, if you will. Um, and we always do this with a shout out at the end of the show where you uh, mention a person, place, or a thing, or something that inspires you today um, that you'd like to recognize. And uh, uh, let's start with you, Brian Solak. And then we'll get to you last, Rob. Okay. All right, my shout out tonight is a couple of them. One yesterday was a national, a day for national girls and women in sports. And Bellingham Bells gave it a shout out to Stephanie Morell and Haley Tiff for their work with Bellingham Bells and the community. So props to them. As we talked about earlier, Stephanie's amazing and she's one of the best at her jobs in the league. So thank, great job to them. And then Angie Mentick, she's a she does anchor on Root Sports here locally, and she's yesterday or two days ago she had her 23rd year anniversary working with the network. So that's awesome when a female works that long for one, and she's been a lead for so long. So props to her. That's awesome. Thank you, Brian. And that makes mine very shallow. Now I wish I had gone first. Uh, <laughs> I was going to thank uh, the NFL for finally doing what Matt and I have been pounding our fists on the table for for years have skills towns tonight i watched dodgeball afc versus nfc and that is way more fun than whatever nonsense they do in a pretend football <laughs> in a game. fake but in, in a fake, fake game. football game yeah over to you matt uh yeah i want to go i want to i want to drive everyone's attention to to i think tomorrow night is the opening ceremonies for the winter olympics in beijing oh, yeah. i always love watching the winter olympics they're my favorite uh and i get a kick out of every year and Watch out for Team Switzerland when it comes to mixed curling. They are the team to beat. Um, They're my jam. So go Team Switzerland. Rob, over to you. And don't forget to include any Twitters or tweeters or uh, social media and websites that you have. Oh, gosh. I mean, the list is so long. Uh, uh, things I could. I will say I appreciate that. Uh, thanks. Uh, I just listened in the last day or two to set two different interviews with the film director Guillermo del Toro and I was just a huge fan of his movies and loved the new one um, Nightmare Alley he just has a such a he's so passionate about what he does and also about and part of what he does is is clearly a craft and an art he's so into monsters and lighting and and just everything that comes along with with creating a movie but he also speaks beautifully about the human condition and uh and, and I, I i just i find everything he does including all of his interviews incredibly inspiring so i would recommend him to anyone excellent and where can people find you where can they find me 
they can find me. My uh, Twitter handle is R-O-B-N-E-Y-E-R, just at Rob Nyer. Just, uh, it's always been that way. All little letters. Um, and uh, um, since we, it's been about an hour since we talked about it, uh, the book with Dale Scott will be out in early May. And uh, look, it's 20% of it probably is Dale's unique personal story. 80% is just fantastic wonderfully entertaining often hilarious baseball stories and i think that just about every single person who loves baseball will enjoy dale's book excellent excellent thank you rob nair for joining our show yes uh this you. is seattle sports union on behalf of matt the damn dirty duck uh page brian the soul man solak and uh, our guest rob nair we thank you all for listening uh, please check us out at SeattleSportsU.com as well. Check out our Twitter at SeattleSportsU and like us on Facebook because I think we're likable. We'll see you guys next week. That was a blast, guys. Thank you. Thank you.